1: One share that is moving quite a bit is that of DuPont. Another is Dow Chemical. That's because the European Union approved the merger of these two agrochemical behemoths to create an even bigger company uh, to get a better sense of what this means going forward is Jason Miner. He is Senior Global Chemicals Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he comes to us from Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, Jason, can you just give us a sense of how unexpected this was that the European Union would approve this deal?
0: Well, in one sense, it's, you know, it's been widely anticipated. I mean, we've been watching this deal. This is really a shapeshifter of a deal, remember, because um, it's a, a huge behemoth merger and then a three-way split up. But we've been watching that unfold or sort of a rumble forward since 2015 when it was announced. The companies have said that they were expecting to close this in the first half. They have missed a couple of deadlines before, and we're in a really mind-boggling climate uh, for regulatory sort of antitrust approval in ag camps, a lot of deals. So, um, on the one hand, it was really foreshadowed. Uh, the timing, though, in many folks' mind was was uncertain. And there were those who had even thought that the uh, the divestitures required to be so massive that they might undermine the value. So uh, maybe it's a little bit more minor or, or manageable than folks expected as well.
1: So just to give some perspective on some of the things you we were talking about, I mean, there are a bunch of combined transactions uh, that are going to reshape the agrochemical industry. Bayer's planned by Monsanto and China National Chemicals Agreement to by Syngenta. Uh, That would bring the six major players in this industry down to just three. Uh, The surprising thing to me was that the European Commission said that there was specific evidence that Dow and DuPont would cut back on the amount they spent on on developing innovative products. I mean, what is going to be the uh, ramifications from this complete reshaping of the agrochemical industry?
0: Yeah, you have to, to, to feel the fear, you've got to put yourself in the seat of the tractor, right? So the the fear is the farmer is looking at this as exactly what you said, which is the, these labs have generated the yield gains around the world, particularly for corn and soy, but many other crops uh, for, for decades now. Uh, and as we as we put these all together, all the names that you've just mentioned, um, we're potentially cutting back on overlaps, right? And Dow DuPont have promised us $3 billion in cost synergies alone. Uh, and, and obviously, under the hood of that, the EU saw some specifics that looked like it would be a few less test tubes devoted to uh, crop chemicals. So it, it raises the question, though. Who's left out there that's a strong hand that can buy what comes out of this uh, as a spinoff?
1: Well, and then it raises another question too, which is, what is the advantage for these mergers, if not for eventually jacking up prices, uh, or having, it, or cutting jobs to such a degree that they are much more efficient?
0: Right. I mean, setting the context, remember we're we're in now. We're about to nominally break three years of declining farm incomes. It's been tough times after biofuels kicked in after 2005 or so we had a big boom a lot of investment and all these companies are looking to cut back now uh... from fertilizers to seeds everybody spent a ton and, and so ultimately, I think the first wave really is uh, cost cuts. Then if you get a little rise in some of the crop prices, you're right, that could have played into a lot of pricing power. So uh, now the stipulation is you've got to find strong hands uh, to, to put this thing in that will continue to compete with you. Uh, We've got to keep five strong players out there. Who this fifth is going to be is <laughs> is really uncertain, because it'll be a big transformational deal for any of the leftover players, probably, who could do it.
1: What, what parts, just to that point, what parts are going to be spun off? What business is are going to be for sale
0: so what we're taking out is a, a piece of dupont's um, now they haven't sized it one could reasonably guess it's a couple billion dollars of sales a year it's it's a uh, a, a bunch of um insecticides and herbicides uh and then and and they, so they name specific products but really the key is the r d lab they said you, you can't take those uh the dow and the dupont r d programs and and put them together, which is obviously where that cost concern came in. You've got to hand that that R&D development and all of your upcoming products, uh, which again is really the core. The the existing portfolios weren't the worry so much as um, you've got to put the, uh, the, the place where the magic happens, you've got to keep that lab alive, you've got to hand it to somebody else. Um, so, so it's a, it's a few, it's a herbicides, insecticides, and then the R and D program, which is the key.
1: Jason, does this at all play into the debate over genetically modified uh, grains and 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 other types of foods? I mean, I know that Europe has been much more against gen- genetically modified uh, food, whereas in the U.S. it's more accepted.
0: Yeah, it links in two ways. So one of the concerns is um, what's happening in all these deals is you're putting together big seed players who have done the biotech stuff with big chemical players. Uh, and there's, those two things go hand in hand. You often uh, engineer a seed to work with a chemical or a spray. So it's a sort of a seed's plus sprays world we're going into. Uh, but it, it can mean that if you have only certain sprays, you only engineer certain seeds, you reduce innovation that way. Uh, on the other hand, there are alternatives to GMOs that can come out of these labs, and we want to see those alternatives come to fruition, I think.
1: Jason Miner, thank you so much for joining us. A fascinating development in the agrochemical industry. I'm sure we'll be talking about it more coming up. Jason Miner is Senior Global Chemicals Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he was speaking to us from Princeton, New Jersey. Many people thought that volatility was dead. Well, today it seems to be showing that perhaps it's not quite uh, dead yet. We see the VIX index at the highest level of the year, and there's somebody perfect to talk about that today. Rick Selvala, he's CEO and co-founder of Harvest Volatility Management. It's his hedge fund uh, that oversees $9 billion of assets. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with the VIX. Uh, we are seeing it tick up. From a historical perspective, it is still incredibly. Incredibly low, but are we just seeing the beginning of this swell in uh, volatility in equity markets? Uh,
2: Thank you, Lisa. Uh, I think it's a pretty good way to think about it. the The fact that the S and P hadn't had a one percent pullback since early October, and we finally saw one uh, late last week, and are continuing to see that uh, today, uh, means the VIX is waking up. And so, um, the VIX's long term average is you know is is around twenty. Uh, interesting. The last five years or so, the average has been closer to sixteen. So, um,
1: and to be clear, it's still less than fourteen. So, it, it's, it's still really low.
2: It, it's still it's still low. It's 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 traded closer to you know eleven twelve area for much of this year, as we've just seen a, a very a long sustained rally without any real pullbacks, any real reason to be fearful. But um, you know, now you're seeing markets wake up to the fact that hey stocks go up and down and everything that maybe was priced in to perfection, um, maybe there's some questions. And and so now there's more reason to either be fearful or to um, to realize that, you know, we could see a bit more chop and and more reason to buy protection.
1: But your fund doesn't doesn't really bet on the direction of volatility it's not like you wake up every morning and say aha we're going to finally get it um and if we don't get this pop in volatility we're going to get sunk or we do and we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna win um you're just betting on incremental changes in volatility uh correct um that's
2: close you're you're, (laughs) You're like
1: 70 percent. you're
2: you're right we're not making judgment calls on the vix and we're not making judgment calls on volatility um we are a perpetual seller of volatility, but with limited risk, meaning we use spreads. So we try to, we sell the expensive options, but buy the cheap options to limit our risk. So another way to think about it is, um, you know, there is a perpetual richness of implied over realized volatility that's been in place since the 87 crash. And it's about three and a half four 4%. And we're trying to exploit and harvest that. Um, And there are many different ways you can do that. But we utilize index options on the S&P 500, you know, the deepest, most liquid market, um, you know, liquidity, transparency, low, you know, execution costs, etc. And for taxable investors, there's actually tax efficiency in using this SPX index option.
1: So Rick, your firm started in 2008. And one thing that I'm struck by is you're looking to get returns of one and a half to 2% that is sort of overlaid on top of returns that investors are already getting on their other capital. In other words, uh, their investments are used as collateral for you to go out and make these uh, synthetic wagers. Uh, And your goal is to gain that sort of incremental extra yield. And in the process, you have amassed $9 billion. To me, this, this raises a question about the hunt for yield and you know if yields do go up are investors still going to be seeking this incremental yield and you know does it also represent potentially that people are are looking too hard for it
2: Uh, great question Um, the we are very much the tortoise Uh, this is a this is not a sexy glamorous strategy where we're looking to hit it out of the park Um, but when you can add one and a half to two percent to anything um, you make it a lot better. Uh, meaning, if somebody's long equities and you can add one and a half to two percent, uh, that's going to take you maybe from the middle of the pack to the top decile.
1: But but uh, you could also lose, right? Oh, you
2: can also lose. Of course, uh, you can't add risk without adding, um, you know, the possibility of loss. So uh, part of the, what we do is, you know, we're selling out of the money spreads on the upside and on the downside, which is another way of saying. Um, a part of the return profile distribution of the S&P to the up and to the down. We create a nice wide band so the market can go up or down and we don't really care. If it goes up too far too fast, um, we're going to lose a little on the call spread side, but we're going to yeah. win on the put spread side, et cetera. So.
1: so do you have certain models to get a sense of when we are going to see these big swings in volatility? You know, uh,
2: the VIX is more reactive than predictive. Um, it, will, um, it will wake up before big known unknowns, like you will see it um, higher in front of an election, you know, higher in front of a Fed meeting, higher in front of monthly non-farm payrolls. Right. When there's an event that we know is there, but we don't really know, A, what the outcome will be, and, and, and B, how the market will react to that outcome. Um, so, um, But we don't have models that are gonna tell us what is gonna happen, we more react to it, but. We have a lot of experience, and, and we're also looking at the curve and looking right. at where things look richer and look things look cheaper, etc.
1: But you've been in the business for decades, right? And so yes. you've been watching the cycles. And is there anything that gives you a sense uh, that we are going to see a more dramatic swing in volatility this year? Um,
2: I don't know. I, I'm not sure if it'll be more dramatic, but I do think we will see um, higher levels of volatility. I think we'll see um, more frequent spikes just because there is such great uncertainty whether it's um political uncertainty economic uncertainty global uncertainty um i frankly and many of my colleagues have been really shocked actually that the vix has remained as low as it has for as long as it has you know since the election um and i think today is is probably more like what we're going to see going forward Um, we will see the the occasional drop down below 12 or so, but I think a VIX in the mid to higher teens is is a more likely outcome.
1: Where are most of your investors from?
2: Um, Most of our investors at this point are ultra high net worth, um, either individual investors, families, but we partner with Firms like Merrill Lynch and UBS and Morgan Stanley. And so their advisors see the value in adding harvest to their client portfolios. They see what it does to the the risk-adjusted quality of the returns. Um, And so...
1: Well, one thing that somebody could argue is that your fund has been around since 2008, but it hasn't really been, uh, it, certainly not in its current form, it has not survived through a crash um, when you actually, volatility is going to be the flashpoint. Right. Uh, so, you know, what happens then, right? I mean, if you have all these alternate worth of people who are looking for, uh, you know, an extra 1%, but it could be a lot more downside in a hurt cycle.
3: Yes, that's I a mean, great
2: question. Um, you know, we launched in April of oh eight, so we did weather the financial crisis in the fall of 08 i mean when you look at what the s&p did from september of 08 into early march of 09 in that 6 month window the s&p was down 50% um, we've weathered a vix that quadrupled uh, you know its long term average is 20 and that's about where it was when we launched you know it doubled to its previous all time high of 40 in september of 08 it doubled again to 80 uh, in in October and, and parts of November of '08. So, um, we did weather um, quite a hellacious uh, downturn. <laughs> hellacious, and, I a, like and, it. <laughs> uh, and and spike and fall. And then the the flip side is is equally challenging when the market surges the way it has, and, and VIX has been more constrained. So,
1: we'll, we'll we'll have to check back with you when uh, the VIX wakes up a little bit more from its current uh, levels. Rick Silvalla, thank you so much for joining us, CEO and co-founder of Harvest Volatility Management, which has nine billion dollars of assets under management. Well, it's a sad day, another sad day in uh, the S&P 500. It is the sixth day of falling uh, index values. What do you make of this, Dave Wilson?
4: Well, I also like to look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is down for an eighth day. (laughs) All right, fine. There you go. And if it uh, closes lower, it'll be the longest-losing streak since August 2011, when stocks were really kind of falling out of bed. And what's interesting is if you take a step back and think about what's going on, it almost looks like the flip side of what we saw post-election, where, you know, you'd see stocks go up day in and day out pretty much, but not very extreme moves. And you look at where we are now, it's sort of a similar situation. You know, Dow down eight days in a row, you're talking about 2.5%. Okay, but hold on one second, though. You raise an interesting question, Dave, which is, if we're seeing
1: the reversal of the post-election Trump bump, How much further do the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones have to fall to leave us flat?
4: Well, there's still quite a ways to go. I mean, you look back to where we were uh, just after the election, you see uh, 2,100 and change. That's where the S&P started out, and we're about – Close to 200 points higher than that, even with today's decline. I mean, you can run the numbers on the Dow. You see a similar uh, potential. And it really comes down to, at this point, you know, how much of this is sort of people looking for an opportunity to sell, especially as you get close to the end of the first quarter as opposed to real concern about the state of the policy agenda, if you will, uh, given the fact that the uh, health care bill did not manage to get a vote in the House last week.
1: Well, the flip side to the risk-off trade is the uh, bullish trade for treasuries. And uh, here with us is Brian Chapata who writes about treasuries and, uh, and debt generally for Bloomberg News. Uh, Brian, you wrote a really compelling story talking about how the cost of buying treasuries and hedging against any dollar moves for Japanese investors has actually fallen to the lowest in two years. This should make it a buy for them. They should be rushing into the U.S. to capture the extra yield, given how cheap it's gotten. But they're not. Why?
3: They're not because they're just worried about uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy here in the U.S., which is seen as way more volatile than over in Japan, where it's you know persistent easing on the monetary front and there's nothing going on uh, on the fiscal side that's going to jeopardize things. I mean, in fact, they're 10-year Rate is basically fixed uh, between like zero and ten basis points. So they find it's much more attractive to potentially to just stay home and uh, you know take the the paltry yield that they got rather than you know risk further losses. The losses on the Treasury Index, uh, the Bloomberg Barclays Treasury Index, uh, in the final quarter of twenty sixteen was the worst that it's ever been in data going back uh, about thirty years. So uh, it was it was a, a surprising loss uh, on their books.
1: So I am looking at the ten year; uh, it's down the most in. Uh about two weeks. I'm wondering, you know, the yield is down, the, the price is up. I'm wondering who's buying? If Japan's not buying, if China's not buying, if European investors maybe are staying home, I mean, who, who's coming into the U.S. right now?
3: I mean, it seems like in part it's, you know, the flip side of, you know, the equity markets, you know, people who, uh, you know, were potentially, you know, betting against uh, betting on interest rates going higher, essentially shorting the treasury market. Uh, they might have to cover some of their shorts as they're seeing a risk off uh, here in the market, we saw the speculative position uh in shorts uh really decline over the past week so um it seems like it's a lot of that and um you know I think the the real interesting thing is that a lot of these Uh, foreign investors that were sort of hesitant, uh, seeing a Fed poised to raise rates, uh, are really caught in limbo here, because they missed out on a a nice rally, but now they think, oh man, we're at the bottom of this range that we've been in for the past few months, now I don't want to buy either. So, they're sort of caught uh, in limbo, uh, which is uh, not great for their demand.
1: Well, Dave, to that point, there was a story that Matt Levine highlighted uh, in the world. Uh, he's a Bloomberg columnist. Uh, the story was in Wall Street Journal uh, quoting an investment manager saying, it's like dental work. You dread it, you don't want to get it, but you're glad when it's over and you feel better. What is he talking about? He's talking about a correction. Like everyone's been sort of praying for this pullback in equity so that they can get in at better valuations. What are you hearing from investment funds? I mean, is this, is this the time to get back in or are people waiting for, for
4: a lot more? Well, I mean, if you think back over the last year or so, I mean, we've certainly seen plenty of times when stocks have dipped and you've seen sort of a a recovery in, in short order. You know, the question is whether this time there's something more gradual going on that will take more time to unwind sort of like you say, uh, you know, the the Trump trades, if you will. So, you know, that that becomes the issue for the moment. And you're certainly seeing that play out today within specific industry groups. You look at the banks, they're lower. You look at the steel companies, they're lower. You know, the banks were supposed to benefit from deregulation, the steel companies from infrastructure spending. And, of course, you've got the hospital stocks taken off because the uh, – Repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act hit its bump. So, you know, it's just a matter of once you get to shake out, where do things go from here?
1: And, Brian, I mean, when you talk with sources, do you get the sense that uh, bond investment managers are generally kind of moving toward a, or back toward, I should say, a slow growth for longer type of environment? Are they basically pricing in the same kind of environment that people were talking about last year and kind of ignoring and casting off the brief inflation hopes that we got after the election?
3: I think that's the underlying tone of the market right now is that, you know, how much has changed from a year ago and I think it's going to take a few days to shake out here exactly if, you know, this is the death of the reflation trade that we've been seeing since the election um or if there is still that potential because we haven't seen treasuries break out of a range that they've been in since basically the start of December um because there's just been this back and forth of, you know, just sentiment i mean will that you know will growth take off or will it be subdued you know what what's going on with inflation is this going to be a persistent thing going right. on and so um it's going to take a little while to play out but i think the underlying tone definitely is you know, how, how how sustainable is this?
1: And just to sort of underscore the confusion, uh, New York Fed President Bill Dudley uh, has said that he is comfortable with a gradual rate hiking cycle, that the economy will cope just fine with that. But James Bullard, uh, another Fed president, uh, thinks that potentially it's overkill. And he said in a, in a, a Bloomberg television interview uh, that it's not necessary to raise rates that quickly if the goal is to keep inflation near target and keep employment unemployment between four 45 and, and 5%. So definitely, uh, clearly a, an important debate. Anyway, uh, thank you so much, Brian Chapata. When you think of the Dodd-Frank Act, which is something that President Trump would like to overhaul, or that's what he has promised to do. You think of trading rules, you think of bank profits, you think of uh, things that are really isolated to the financial sector, but that's not necessarily the case. Elizabeth Dexheimer, finance reporter with Bloomberg News, reported on another part of this law that affects retailers as much as it does the financial companies. Elizabeth, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Can you just give us an Overview of this part of the law that has to do with swipe fees, or how much retailers can or char- are charged by the banks uh, per each transaction for debit or uh, credit cards.
5: Yeah, Lisa, it's good to talk with you. Uh, so, sure, this is uh, this is an issue that really gets at the heart of how financial companies, banks, payments, firms like Visa and MasterCard make money from debit and credit cards, uh, which is a very lucrative business. Every time you swipe your credit card, uh, one big chunk of it, uh, uh, of the money that banks make is uh, something called interchange fees, which are fees that are charged to the retailers uh, uh, every time a card is swiped. Those fees particularly for debit cards as part of Dodd-Frank there was a provision that was added that capped those fees for debit cards uh, about 9 billion dollars has been lost to the banking industry in revenue because of that uh, provision Well and just the so, direct
1: cor- the opposite side of that is that retailers have kept 9 billion dollars in profits right
5: Right, and they argue that uh, they have been able to translate that to lower prices um, at the register for consumers. So you have these two, you know, the homest of industry. Uh, You know, we're talking about uh, Walmart, J.P. Morgan, uh, as well as lots of small businesses, restaurants, uh, and then as well as on the banking side, this stems to uh, small banks, community banks, credit unions that have all felt uh, the effects on this on, on either side. And so as the House of Representatives in particular takes up this debate around what a package would look like to overhaul Dodd-Frank, an updated package, one of sort of the sticking points that has come up is whether or not to include a repeal of this provision. Banks would like to see a repeal of that provision. Retailers want to keep it as the, the law currently is right now. And that's put lawmakers in a very sticky spot, both Republicans and Democrats, because retailers and banks are a very big and important constituent for most lawmakers, as well as an important political uh, contributor from from both sides. So the, uh, lawmakers would prefer to continue to put this off <laughs>
1: Yeah. As you sort of highlighted, you had a, a great list of uh, responses from a number of both Republican and Democrats, things like, we're listening to everyone. We haven't taken a position on uh, on this yet. If you contact our office, we'll talk to you about that at another time when I'm prepared. I love the the quotes, it's sort of just this sense of wanting to kick the can down the road. And just to be clear, this is the Durban Amendment. Um, and can you give us a little bit of color, Elizabeth, about how much money and time and how some of these industries Lobbying for their perspective?
5: Sure. So, this is really just the latest battle in what has been a nearly decade long fight uh, between these two industries on Capitol Hill. This has also stemmed to the courts. This is, um, you know, an issue that uh, has also come up just in business negotiations. And, of course, Recently, ever since you know Donald Trump was elected, and sort of the conversation around broader Dodd-Frank changes uh, was put on the table, if you will, uh, they've been both sides have been ramping up uh, their their lobbying and advocacy efforts. One of the one of the strategies, a lot of similar strategies that they that both sides have been using for for many years, uh, but again, sort of really uh, ramping up, um, particularly relying on smaller constituents, uh, you know, relying on the small banks, relying on small retailers. To really just storm Capitol Hill, letters, phone calls, just right. nonstop. Uh, you know, uh, but it, but it's effective, and that there are so many that these constituents, you know, making noise in any one lawmaker's office is, you know, gets the attention of that that lawmaker. Right.
1: What? What? what I mean, I don't. Understand. One thing that that does this does raise to me is potentially the banks could say, look. We're competitive. We're trying to compete with one another. All that this cap does is remove the uh, sort of inherent competition and remove the, the playing field in a way that potentially limits innovation or, uh, you know, creates sort of ripples that might not be desirable through markets. I mean, what What do the retailers say to
5: that? Sure. So there are both sides uh, point to various data and studies that have been done about the impact, uh, and quite frankly, it, it's not conclusive. In that there, are, you know, different sets of data tell different stories. The um, as you just pointed out, the, the level playing field and the, the competition factor that, that banks will, will cite. Retailers say that 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 it. The way that these prices are are, are put together and, and put out there is not fair. They have no real say in, in sort of how the, these prices are, are determined and that uh, by lowering the fees that they have to pay, they can in turn... Uh, lower fee- uh, lower prices of anything that you would buy at, at the register. Well, sure, although and,
1: although you have to yeah. wonder. I mean, if people are going to be using other methods of payment, if you know they just pass along the charges for credit
5: card transactions, right? Right, and and even that point about where the consumer sees the savings, if a consumer sees the sa- sees any savings from this, uh, that data is inconclusive as well. There have been some studies that show that retailers did not actually do any, make any changes, or if they did, it was actually to raise fees. Or excuse me, raise prices. That this did you know little to impact the you know what what they're being charged. And yes, absolutely, there's other forms of payments. And that's where the sort of what's really at stake for, for this conversation in general is that, yes, this particular part is about choosing a, around the, the Durban Amendment specifically as it relates to uh, debit cards. But this is also about a broader conversation about credit cards, which is a much more lucrative business as well as uh, sort of future when we're talking about right. new technology. Right, right. You know, Unfortunately, sort
1: of- Elizabeth, we have to leave it there, but thank you so much. Fascinating story. Elizabeth Dex. I'm finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox.
1: I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.